You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. We're going deep back into the archives, the History Hit vault We've spun the big silver circular handle thing. We've slid back the vault. We're deep underground, like Indiana Jones when he puts the Ark of the Covenant somewhere it's never going to be found. And we found this from our archives. This week in 1940 was the start of the Blitz on London, the air assault on London as Hitler directed Lefafa to try and smash Britain's imperial capital, to bring the British government to their knees, make them see sense, force them, to negotiate a peace with Hitler so he could turn east and achieve his dream of Lebensraum of empire in the east. And so Luftwaffe bombs fell on the docks of London on the 7th of September 1940 and for most of the days following right up to and after Christmas. It's an event that's formative in Britain's national character today. It's become mythologised. So we thought we'd talk to Joshua Levine back in 2016 in this podcast about the Blitz, the real history, the secret history of the Blitz. Joshua Levine has written prize-winning history books. He's written about the Second World War and other subjects. He was the historical advisor of Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's epic adventure movie set during the Dunkirk evacuation of May, June 1940. Love that film. So he is the guy to tell us all about it. You can listen to other episodes in the deep, deep archives of this podcast only at History Hit TV by becoming a subscriber there. Only the most recent pods are available for free on the rest of the internet, the real gold, the real archive is buried away there on historyhit.tv. Go there, historyhit.tv. Subscribe. You get the world's best history channel. You get hundreds of hours of TV documentaries. You also get all these podcasts. It's a sweet deal. It's amazing. I'm so glad we invented it. In the meantime, though, everyone, here is Joshua Levine on The Blitz. Enjoy. How do we define the Blitz? The Blitz runs from September 1940 to May 1941. Is that about right? Yeah, officially that's that's the case. It's it's September the 7th through to 11th of May of 1941. So it's a, a period of eight and a half months. It, you know, that is the official period that's gone down. But of course, you know, there was bombing outside of this. I went to, to Cambridge uh, recently, for example, and met people who had remembered bombing in June 
1940, before the Blitz had, uh, had officially begun. You know, nine people were killed there, including a girl who'd been evacuated away from London to be safe. So it's actually quite vague. The whole, the whole period, even though that's officially what it was, and there's no doubt that September the 7th was the day that, that, that Hermann Goering changed his, his focus from bombing the airfields and, and, and the Battle of Britain to uh, bombing the cities. The fact is that people died outside of this period. So, you know, you can't necessarily say the Blitz ran from day X to day Y. Okay, but that's really, we ha- they've had to give it some official date. So that's, that's a, good, a good place to start. It's a good now, place. why did the Blitz begin? So let, let's just say France falls to Nazi Germany in the early summer of 1940. Britain stands alone. Churchill refuses to either surrender or make peace with the Germans. The Germans attempt to knock Britain out of the war. That, I think that's an important phrase, isn't it? It's not necessarily invade. It's not that's a, right. They tried to knock Britain out of the war. Initially, they do so by attacking the RAF airfields, by exactly. to- attacking coastal trade. But then in September, as you point out, the strategy changes. So briefly, why does Germany start the Blitz? Why do they start attacking cities and bombing civilians? Well, I think, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. The fact is that, that what... What Hitler, what the, what the Nazis wanted was to bring Britain to heel. So whereas for, for the British people, the Battle of Britain and the Blitz are two very, very different things. They, they, they happened in different places. The Battle of Britain happened over their heads in southern England. The Blitz was an actual attack on their towns and cities, on, on them. Uh, people became, as is often said, frontline troops. For the Germans, I don't think it was quite that distinction. It was, it was an attempt. First of all, the Battle of Britain was the attempt to, 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 to lure the uh, fighter command of the Royal Air Force up into the air to to knock it out so that an invasion might become possible. Well, when that didn't succeed, or when it seemed that hadn't succeeded, they simply changed their focus slightly. They they decided to to to, to attack the cities, and, and and the idea was, you know, partly to to knock out the centres of government, to knock out the the, the location of, of of trade where where supplies came in, but also to to affect civilian morale. The idea was because there hadn't been such a a concerted bombing attack before in history. So the idea was that if uh, sufficient bombs were dropped on a civilian population, then, then, then that population might well rise up against its own government. It might insist on peace being made. It might insist on surrender. So this was a, a, a change of focus, but not really such a huge change in, in, in German strategy and German attitudes. It was an attempt, basically, one way or another, to bring Britain to heel, to bring Britain under the power of, of, of Nazi Germany. And when that didn't seem to succeed, by May 1941, that's when uh, Hitler's focus moved elsewhere, moved to the Soviet Union. So the war against England, Gagan Engeland, came to a, to, a, to a halt at that point. Of course, the wider war didn't. The wider war was just kicking off. But the war where Britain and its colonies and its dominions were standing alone, that's where that ended. Now, Josh, I want to pick you up because that's for me the most one of the most one of the most interesting things about the Blitz is this was the first great aerial bombardment, sustained aerial bombardment in history. So no one knew what was going to happen. Would the population right. rise up? Would the government fall? Would war weariness or would the economy literally collapse? And there had been a very effective bombing against the Dutch. The Dutch had sort of bowed right. out of World War II after about two days, particularly after it was at Rotterdam was very badly bombed. That's right, it? Rotterdam, so, big attack on so, Rotterdam. So, so people thought, if you're sitting in the summer of 1940, you think, well, air power is this new thing. Strategic bombing is now a thing. It's never really been done before on a, on a, on a strategic level. This might work. That's absolutely right. I mean, it was, you know, there were genuine fears. In fact, all, if you think about it, there'd been quite heavy bombing during the First World War, what's become known as the, uh, as the first blitz on, 
on on Britain with Zeppelins and then Gotha bombers. And it, it did seem, I mean, the, the, the British public really were scared by that. You know, there, there was genuine panic in Britain at the fact that, you know, these bombers were coming over, these airships were coming over, and there didn't seem any way to fight back against them. So that was a, that was an initial experience, and then there were other. There was you had Guernica, you had Rotterdam, as you said, and these even though these were large scale attacks, they weren't concerted. They weren't over a long period of time. So by the time the Second World War came round, we we'd had limited. Well, my we, I mean people, had had limited experience of bombing campaigns, and there'd always seemed to be a sense that you know if, if if they were cranked up somewhat, then real damage could be done, real damage to civilian morale above all. And so it was completely untested. When the Second World War started, the idea was, people, it was very common, that when a great bombing campaign began, uh, the civilian population simply would not be able to put up with it. People would be killed in huge numbers. People who weren't killed would be driven mad. And the population would simply insist on peace being made. It wouldn't be able to tolerate it. So how did Britain deal with this massive assault on its civilian urban centres from September 1940 onwards? Because obviously, for those people listening abroad, you can't underestimate the importance of the Blitz here in the UK. It's a word that's entered our language, the Blitz spirit. We survived the Blitz. You always hear that said after every terrorist attack or after every, well, so many occasions in our political life and our cultural life. We like to think that we sailed through it, no problem at all, everyone working together. And we, we all summoned up the Blitz spirit and got on with it. How true is that? As with most of these things, it's both true and untrue. I mean, it all depends on who you speak to. It depends on the people you're talking about. For those whose, first of all, for, for about 43,500 people were killed during the Blitz. So that's a large number, a huge number of people. If you were involved with that, if your family members were killed, if you were wounded, if you lost all your possessions, then the Blitz to you was a dark and terrible time. Uh, but that obviously is not the whole story because for... For, for many people who lived through this period, they found that their lives completely changed. It was such a time of extremes, I think, extremes in all directions. I mean, people didn't know if they would be alive tomorrow. People were suddenly found themselves living different kinds of lives. These sort of extremes absolutely changed the way people uh, lived, changed the way people's attitudes to their, their lives, their attitudes to each other, changed the whole sort of tenor of people's lives. So for some, Clearly, the Blitz was a, was a dark event, a terrible event. Uh, for them, Blitz spirit is utterly meaningless. For others who, because of this extremity, found themselves meeting each other, talking to each other, sharing each other's clothes, being in shelters with each other, meeting members of different classes, actually meeting each other for the first time. For those people, they actually have positive memories of the Blitz. And then, of course, you know, you have these extremes. I mean, I, I, have, I, I met one lady who told me a uh, an extraordinary story, being on a bus in London. This was during the height of the Blitz, and she was traveling through, I think it was Chelsea and Westminster, and she was on the bus, and she was at the back, and at the front of the bus there was a man who was on his own. She was on her own. Neither of them knew each other. Uh, they heard a stick of bombs coming down. The driver obviously heard it as well. He veered off the route. The bomb exploded elsewhere. He cut back on the route. And while the bomb had been coming down, the man at the front had got up, slowly walked to the back, and held hands with this woman. And then when they were safe, he got up again and walked back to the front of the bus and sat there. The two of them never even looked at each other. They never shared a word. That, to me, is blitz spirit. That, that to me, is, is in its absolute purest form, people coming together, people in danger, people suddenly putting aside all their day-to-day -day differences and coming together in common cause. And that is what blitz spirit was, to me, 
having spoken to a lot of people, Blitz Spirit was absolutely real. But the extremes, as well as bringing people together, also forced people apart. People started behaving in ways they never had done before. I'm talking in terms of crime. I'm talking in terms of sex. Uh, I'm talking in all sorts of different ways, even in tiny little ways. A woman who went into a pub on her own. Before the war, she never would have done that. But at this period, she was willing to do it because why not? People's attitudes change. What people, people's expectations change. What they were willing to put up with and what they considered normal all changed. So this was a period where, you know, socially, sexually, politically, criminally, in so many different ways, attitudes changed and we were moving forward to something completely new. You've given us a big sweep there. Yeah. Um, uh, what about some of the we all we all get taught about in school how altruistic and wonderful everyone was and helping each other yeah. out. What about some of the darker sides of the blitz? Because there was actually a lot of looting, there was yes. a lot of theft. You know, when when properties were. What what are the, some of the stories that we Brits don't like to tell ourselves about the blitz? Well, I mean, I think you know, first of all, we're we're all people, we're ordinary people, so it's not surprising that given opportunity, things like this happen. So if you think about it, during the blitz, you had you had a blackout, um, so there was instant opportunity. Um, you had police who, there weren't as many police around, a lot of police had joined up and a lot of their places had been taken by special constables and police had new roles. They had to show up at, at, at bomb incidents. So they, they found themselves uh, very stretched. You had, a, you had a black market. You had all sorts of new opportunities and people are people. So we shouldn't be surprised there was more crime. But then at the same time, you know, as I was saying a bit earlier, with, with the, 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 these extremes, Suddenly, morality shifted. People weren't, didn't mind so much doing things that before they, they would never have done. And in fact, you know, the, the, the wartime regulations came in and suddenly criminalized people. So, so uh, you know, you had the, the, the well-known, you know, turn that light out sort of crimes of people leaving, leaving lights on in the blackout. And you had the well-known sort of food crimes. But you had other things as well, extraordinary arbitrary crimes like, you know, driving a light-colored car or having a car radio. I spoke to a woman who's, you know, she, she, her chicken hadn't been weighed before she received it. And so she became a criminal overnight because of that. And this was also arbitrary. Suddenly people who had never even considered breaking the law before became criminals. And when, when these lines start to blur, then, then it, once again, you have attitudes changing, uh, shifting and, and society um, begins to change. But uh, to me, that's the most interesting crime um, that, that I've come across, and one that really seems to sort of highlight the, the extremity of the Blitz, is, is uh, a man who used the Blitz. He had a small gang, four people, uh, and they, they used the Blitz as an opportunity to, to break into warehouses and steal safes. And that's what they started doing. They did it as often as they could. And you had this, this, this gang who waited uh, in the midst of a Blitz uh, at a warehouse in, in London Bridge, and they crept in, they broke into the warehouse, and they picked up the safe. And they were on their way out during the raid with the safe when a bomb dropped nearby uh, and threw them all up into the air. They were all okay. So they started to run. And as they ran away, one of them, who was known, known as Spider, uh, noticed a little girl in a window about three stories up. And she was trapped, and, and the building was on fire. So Spider sort of shimmied up the building and took the girl in her arms uh, and then tried to find a way down. In the meantime, you had the, the fire engines coming. You also had a policeman coming. And, and they managed to get Spider and this girl down. And a policeman was there at the bottom saying to Spider, you know, congratulations, you've saved this girl's life. You know, can we have your details, your name, your address? We'd like to recommend you for an award. Now, Spider was a cat burglar. 
Spider, the last thing he wanted on earth was to give his details. So he just made, made his apologies and made off. And I think this is fascinating to see how, you know, in, in the flash of a bomb, somebody goes from being a thief to being a lifesaver. That is this kind of, that's what this period is about, this, this intensity, these extremes, the fact that people didn't know what their role, what they were going to be doing from moment to moment. Uh, and it's why I think so many changes were able to come out of the Blitz, because people started behaving and thinking differently. Let's uh, talk another. I mean, Hitler deliberately, as I understand it, targeted the East End because he hoped that the, the largely poorer people of the East End would rise up against the elite who lived in West London because they were suffering more from German bombs. And, and the Queen Mother famously said when Buckingham Palace was hit by bombs during the Blitz, thank goodness for that. Sorry, the Queen said, thank goodness for that, because... I can now look the East End in the face. Well, how close, although we like to talk about it in Britain, everything was very socially harmonious, how close did we come to, to real um, public order, perhaps proto-revolutionary incidents during the Blitz? My, my own view is that we didn't come particularly close to, to, to that. I mean, I think a lot of people were very disgruntled, and there's no doubt about it, as you say, when the East End was being very heavily hit, and it didn't at first seem as though you know, any, any of the West End, uh, and, and, and certainly not the sort of more expensive boroughs uh, were being hit, then a lot of people were very, very disgruntled. There's no doubt about that. But I think we fell far short of what some people feared, which was it was going to actually cause a schism in, in, in society. Um, I think, you know, it, undoubtedly, the fact that, the, that Buckingham Palace was bombed and bombed more than once, you know, bombed a lot, was was, was, you know, in a way, in a sort of public relations sense, very, very good because it did, um, it, it, it did suggest that we're all in this together. And I think the, the, the royal family and those advising them were, were, were actually probably, you know, up to a point quite pleased about that. Um, but I, I think it, it's a bit of a red herring to say that we genuinely came close to, to, to any kind of popular uprising. It was more a, a, a fear uh, before the war and in the early stages of the Blitz, that that would be the case that's remained with us. We know, we remember that that always was a fear. But, but I think in practice, we were, we were quite a long way from that. I was very struck by that because it's not something that I ever thought about. But then you, you read there were a few instances when a mob, an East End mob turned up at the Dorchester and said, you know, cause trouble. And then also I was reading some letters in the archive the other day from Edwina Mountbatten, so Lord oh, yeah. Mountbatten's wife. And she said they were, she was very happy she was living at Kensington Palace and she made lots of suggestions that they'd be protected there. And I, I thought against, too, the invading Germans. And I suddenly realized that she was actually talking about against the mob, against the people, if society starts to break down under the pressure of German bombardment. So, But I think this is time, more to do with the fear. This is more to do with the fear of, of that happening. That, you know, people, people became very insecure. People became very paranoid. You know, and it's not surprising. I mean, people who, people who had been in positions of, 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 of power and, and positions of, of, of relative comfort, you know, were, were nervous that this was going to, that society was going to upend and, and a period of misrule was going to take over. So, so I think it was more to do with fear than actual events. But when you talk about the, what actually happened in terms of the, the mob from the East End coming into the, the West End, they went into the Savoy, actually. It was the it was Savoy shelter that they, they took over. And it wasn't actually a mob in quite the, the sense that, that people think. It was actually organized by a, a communist councillor down in Stepney called Phil Paratin. Uh, and and, and, and it, it was quite an ordered invasion. What he did basically was bring a group up from Stepney and they entered the, the Savoy and they went into the shelter and they basically said, we're, we're not going to leave 
for a while, we're just going to make our point that, that um, you know, we don't have deep shelters. Because what he was complaining about at that point was this really interesting idea that the government was very, very keen on uh, everybody sheltering separately. Uh, they, they, you know, the idea of Anderson shelters in everybody's garden, which people were granted, and they built them and they were covered in corrugated iron. And they were actually pretty good, unless you were, were, got, a, got a direct hit. You were, you were generally pretty safe in an Anderson shelter. And then later in the bits, they brought in Morrison shelters, which were actually inside the house, big sort of sturdy cages you could eat your dinner off and then shelter inside afterwards, because a lot of people preferred to, to sit under the stairs. So those were where you know, people sheltered individually. That's what the government wanted. That was their policy. But what a lot of people wanted, and certainly you know, before the war and in the early part of the war, they wanted these large, deep shelters, which they considered much safer. And so at the beginning of the war, the government decided people were not going to be allowed to, to shelter in the underground. They were worried that by you know, lots of people going into these deep shelters, that a kind of troglodyte community would build up. where People would, would become so comfortable living their sort of dirty lives underground uh, that they wouldn't want to come up again. It would become a sort of anti-establishment society living underground. And this is, you know, depending on how you look at it, but perhaps it's a, it's a rational fear or perhaps it's, it's a kind of patronizing fear of the, of, of the working class mentality. But either way, the fact was that the, the authorities, the government decided that people would not be allowed to shelter in the London underground. And, you know, I found the cabinet records of this where the chief of the Metropolitan Police actually says, well, what do you what do we do if people come down? Do we do we open fire on, on our own people? And in the end, that's it sort of started moving in that direction. First of all, people started buying tickets and just staying down in the underground. And then after that, people started actually trying to force their way in. So you had this this invasion of the Savoy shelter by Phil Paratin. And then people started forcing their way down into, I think it was Liverpool Street and I think Hoban. And eventually, the government decided there's nothing we can do about this. Yes, we don't want people going down. Yes, we want to keep the tubes open for, for essential business, but we are going to have to give into it. And of course, now it's, it's, it's one of the sort of totems of, of, of blitz spirit. The fact that people did go down, people did, you know, a lot of people had a wonderful time down there. At the end of the war, a lot of people, you know, particularly older people have been very lonely. Uh, you know, hadn't had any kind of community, they suddenly found themselves having these underground communities. And at the end of the war, even when people were safe, they really didn't want to come back up at all. You're listening to Dan Snow's History, talking about the Blitz. More after this. Hello, I'm James Rogers, and over on the History Hit Warfare podcast, we're marking the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We welcome Joe Dittmar, who was on the 105th floor of Tower 2. He takes us through his personal experience of surviving 9-11 and his escape on that day. We also welcome Jessica DeLong, who provides a different perspective. She served at Ground Zero, and she tells us about the efforts to fight the raging fires and evacuate thousands of people via boat. We're also joined by world-leading experts on the history of terrorist hijackings and the history of terror attacks on New York City going back to the 1920s. Join us for this special commemorative week on the History Hit Warfare podcast. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. 
Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you use a messaging app, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It's one of the great tragedies of our human condition that it takes hardship and danger and pain and suffering to remind us about what's really important. And actually, often people find those some of the most enjoyable experiences of their lives, certainly. Well, I think that's right. And out of this pain, you see, when you talk to somebody who was badly injured during the Blitz, who lost people, and you, you try and suggest that anything good came out of it, you know, they quite understand that they get annoyed about it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, this was not a good time. It was a very black time. For many people, it absolutely was. But for many others, they actually found a sense of community for the first time. Um, but it worked the other way. You know, I, I found a picture of a, of a badge somebody wore saying, I'm not interested in your bomb. You know, because people, the, the great common denominator this time was the fact people could sit down, the rich, the poor, everybody could sit down and compare bomb stories. Not everyone wanted to do that. Some people, you know, like you imagine many people today were just simply, well, no, I'm, why should I be interested in you? I'm, I'm the same person I was last year and I'm, I'm not interested. So all kinds of people behaved in all kinds of different ways. But I think it is true to say that on a much bigger scale than, than before, or possibly ever before, People from different backgrounds, with different attitudes, who would never have found any common ground, suddenly did find themselves drawn to each other because they were sharing. They were sharing food, the kinds of food. They were sharing clothes. They were sharing fire-watching duties. They were sharing shelter, doing all these things. And they were also in it together, trying to win, well, trying to survive, and hopefully in the longer term, trying to win the war. And, you know, so much of it is touching. I found quite recently, you know, all these, all these uh, documents in, in Coventry to do with the rebuilding of Coventry after that, because Coventry was very, very badly damaged and uh, almost destroyed the centre in, in, in uh, November of 1940. 
And it's quite strange that the, 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 the Coventry architect, the official Coventry architect, had actually drawn up plans for the rebuilding of Coventry in 1939, before the war. But he'd actually stated at the time, there's very little chance of this happening because you'd have to tear down large swathes of Coventry and no one's going to give me the permission to do that. Well, then in November 1940, the Luftwaffe gave him the permission to do that. They, they did it for him. And the plans were quickly put in place for the rebuilding of Coventry along his lines. And I, I, I listened to this wonderful BBC radio program from, from 1941, still when the, the wars absolutely could go either way, you know, and if anything was, was going against the, the British. And, and you hear these people being interviewed uh, about what they want from their new houses. And it is so touching. They're talking that, you know, they, they want indoor toilets. They want places where they can go to shops and, and get the shopping centers where they can get everything in one go. They want modern appliances. They want refrigerators. They want, it's all so, so modest what people are asking for. But what perhaps is most, to me, most moving about it is they're talking about it at a time when really you think they, all they would be interested in was the war and, and how the war is going to go. But, but the fact is this was a period when people were starting to think to the future. You know, they were starting to think of, of their new lives, of, the, of a new social world, maybe even a new political world, of a time, you know, because people were being brought together, people were thinking in the longer term of, you know, of a closer, more uh, society based around more harmony. And I, I think this is really, once you get deep into it, a very exciting period, as well as a very dark period. Were people having sex with each other more than they would have done in the 1930s? Was this the first sexual revolution? It was. It, I mean, I don't think there's, you know, the, uh, you can give two sides to a lot of different things here, but um, I'm pretty clear that this, this was the first sexual revolution. You know, first of all, you know, people didn't know whether they were going to survive. People were living in these dangerous, dangerous times. And so the first thing that goes out of the window is a sense of, you know, why, sh why shouldn't I do this? So that's one thing. Another thing, you had families being split up. You had men away in the army. You had others who weren't in the army who were being sent to, to, to other parts of the country. So you had that. You know, you also had, you, you had this sort of entity coming, that came into being called, you know, people actually started calling them wartime marriages, where people got together for the period. So married people who had husbands, wives elsewhere, who found themselves in close confinement during the wartime period, um, actually came together with these wartime marriages where they were loyal to each other. Um, and, and they carried on as though they were in a marriage, but always with the understanding that it would come to an end once the war ended. And I, I spoke to one woman who told me about her mother who'd been very unhappy before the war, had engaged in one of these wartime marriages in London with somebody who, from one of the ministries who'd come down from Scotland and was, all, was a much happier person for the rest of her life. And so, so you had all this kind of thing. I think in terms of homosexuality as well, you had all sorts of doors opening. Things, things were suddenly happening. Um, you know, if you talk to, if you read Quentin Crisp, for example, he talks about London becoming one huge paved bed. Also, you know, if you think about it, you had the, the whole sort of pyrotechnics of the war. You, you, there's one account I read of a man saying, uh, you know, having, having, having sex during, during the bombing and saying it was the most intense experience of his life. So in all these different ways, yes, absolutely, sexuality was being encouraged. And then at the end of the war, the government did everything it could to, to sort of place this genie back into the bottle. And to some degree, it succeeded. You know, they, they, um, they encouraged, absolutely encouraged marriage at the end of the war, encouraged fidelity at the end of the war. 
and you know the marriage rate went up and the, the the explosion in children born out of wedlock came down again but you know it was only it, it had been experienced and when these kind of things are experienced they don't disappear altogether and there's no doubt in my mind this was absolutely the sort of bedrock out of which the the what we think of as a sexual revolution of the 60s came because you know by the time the people who were experiencing the sexual revolution at this point, by that time, you know, they were middle-aged, they were in their 40s, and they were in positions of power. They had already experienced this, and they weren't going to stand in its way a second time. That's very interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Let's go back to the chronology of the Blitz. So mm. it begins with massive assaults on London itself. The Eastern That's Atlantic, right. the docks of London, let's destroy Britain, the greatest maritime power, the greatest commercial power in the world, still just about at that stage. But then it spreads out to the other cities. Let's not forget, let's not forget Liverpool, let's not forget Glasgow, even Absolutely. Belfast, I think. So how did it progress? Was there any logic to it or was it just different cities, different nights? No, I think there was a logic to it. I think, you know, it's, it's as you say, it started off in London, in, in the, the docks in London, and also the, the, the centre of government in London. And the fact is, most of the people were, you know, not most of the people, but the, the, the largest single civic conglomeration was London. So the idea was, you know, we will attack the area of supply, the docks where things come in, we'll attack the centre of government, and we will attack the people. The idea being that, we, you know, we will encourage this, this sort of breakdown of, of morale, which will, which will force the country to come to terms with us. Uh, so that was the beginning. When you know, by after a few months, uh, it, it, it seemed as though that this wasn't particularly working. That's when it was uh, broadened out to to, to uh, provincial cities. That's when, you know, so many of the cities and towns uh, of Britain started receiving these uh, these extraordinarily heavy, extraordinarily terrifying raids. Um, and as you say, I mean, it got to it got to you know Belfast. People often forget that Belfast was attacked. You you had you had um, Clyde Bank, you had Glasgow very heavily attacked. You had Liverpool, you had Manchester, you had Co- I mean, Coventry was attacked because it was it was where so many of the factories were based before the war. These had been car factories, um, uh, automotive factories. But then during the war, a lot of these were were turned into munition factories, and so that was an obvious place to attack. And and uh, and, and so the attack sort of broadened out. And, and, and in a way, I mean, that meant the whole country could, started to understand actually what was, what was going on. The Blitz wasn't just a London thing. Although it's very interesting. If you speak to people today, a lot of people think the Blitz was only on London. You, you, do, you know, when I was talking about, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book about the Blitz. And, and, and they'll say to you, oh, right, so, so you know, are you, are, you, are, you, are, you, are you just talking about London then? And you say, no, 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 it wasn't just London. It was the whole country was absolutely involved in this. And that's why when you talk about the, you know, the social changes and the, and the changes in attitudes, you're not just talking about the capital. You are talking about the entire country. And there's some really strange bombing raids. With, you know, bombs were actually dropped on Dublin, probably by mistake. But, but um, you know, Ireland wasn't even in the war. Ireland was neutral. You know, it was a very, very wide-scale uh, attack. And it ended... In, in May 1941. But of course, that wasn't the end of the bombing. You know, the bombing raids carried on, perhaps not on quite that big a scale for a while, but you had the Bidecker raids. And then, of course, you had the V1 and V2 raids of 44, 45. And had the war continued, I mean, who knows what, what, what Hitler had up his sleeve. But, but so, the, so the bombing actually did carry on, basically, throughout the war. In this winter of 1940, 41, you've got what, it's, it's all night bombing, but well, apart from the very early stuff, it's, it's That's right. night bombing, 
by Dornies and Heinkels, is it? And they're dropping, what, what are we talking, incendiary bombs or high explosives? What's, what's doing most of the damage? Both. In fact, a lot of, a lot of the, the big damage is actually done by incendiaries because, you know, initially I think the idea was, you know, incendiaries were going to be useful to sort of show the path for bombers that came afterwards and the damage was going to be done by, by the high explosive bombs. But actually what, what people discovered, and actually discovered in bombing raids elsewhere towards the end of the war, or later on in the war in, in Germany and then in Japan, was incendiaries could do an enormous amount of damage on their own. They could start fires on, on a really quite horrifying scale and, and, and fires could do more damage when they joined together than, than high explosive bombs. So you were talking about incendiary bombs on the, on the smaller scale, but absolutely not uh, causing the least damage. Then you're talking about high explosive bombs. And then during the Blitz itself, the biggest bomb that was dropped was, was the landmine, this, this absolutely enormous shipping mine that had been uh, adapted to, to float down uh, on a parachute. And you know, I spoke to, to one man who remembered a, a, a landmine floating down, and they used to come down very, very gently. And he saw it coming down. This was right at the beginning of the Blitz. And he jumped up uh, thinking that he could catch it. He was on the top of a hill. Um, and he had no idea what it was, and he saw this parachute coming down, and it drifted off and landed uh, several hundred yards away, uh, and he'd almost grabbed hold of a of a landmine, which could destroy an entire street. So, you know, people, you did have a, a wide range of, of bombs coming down, and as you say, they were dropped from Dorniers, they dropped from Heinkels. You know, the, the, the Germans had discovered that the, the dive bombers, the Stukas, weren't, weren't really particularly good up against the, 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 the fighters. So, so that, that was what they used, and they, they bombed, uh, at night, and you know, enormous number of huge damage was done. I mean, on the last well, night of the Blitz, you had ten thousand houses destroyed. I mean, it's, it's massive, massive. We're talking huge scale. Did the Luftwaffe sort of say to their pilots, "Right, chaps, tonight we're going to go and hit this supermarine or Vickers factory in Birmingham"? Or by the end of the Blitz, were they just saying, "We are just going to go and drop bombs on British people who live in Coventry or Birmingham"? What was the targeting like? What was the aspiration? I, the targeting was pretty poor. I mean, there was, they, they were, they were, there was very, very limited ability to target accurately. So. So what they would do is they would send send people over, they send airplanes over to to attack a particular city, to attack a particular area, and you know sometimes to try and attack particular factories or particular points, but it was almost impossible to hit. Them. I mean, you, there, there was no there was no pinpoint bombing in those days. So you know, for example, when they went after Coventry, they sent huge numbers of aircraft over. This was the the heaviest raid ever to that date, and they did damage a huge number of the factories that were in Coventry. They also completely flattened the city centre. But they didn't do it in any pinpoint way. They did it by flattening um, as much of Coventry as they possibly could. And, you know, what people discovered often, in fact, for the most part, was that, yes, even though a lot of damage was done, even though a lot of factories were destroyed, even though a lot of houses were destroyed and a lot of people were killed, the fact was a, you know, morale wasn't as seriously affected as, as people had feared before the war and in the early part of the Blitz. And B, the factories could really get back on their feet surprisingly quickly. So even though Coventry, for example, was very badly damaged, the fact was most of the factories were back up and running in weeks and running to almost full capacity. So I think what the Second World War showed in terms of bombing was that until the raids could be absolutely huge as they were on Germany and in, in you know from sort of forty three onwards and then on on Japan in nineteen forty five until that point, the damage done, although huge, wasn't quite as breathtaking as people had feared. And in fact, the damage was sort of different to what they'd expected. There's there's a very very touching and very sad case I came across 
an old Bailey case. I came the records across in the in the National Archive of a woman called Ida Rodway who who had been bombed out of her house in Hackney, and she was she was an old woman. Her husband was had been a car man, and he was he was starting to suffer from senility. And their house in Hackney had been bombed. They'd been forced to go and sleep on her sister's floor, and they'd been completely left helpless. And the point here was that. Before the war, Britain had sort of prepared for huge numbers of deaths. They thought that the death toll would be enormous. What in fact happened was that large numbers of people were left homeless, but not as many people were killed as they'd expected. And they were caught out, severely caught out. So they had huge numbers of effectively refugees, um, and they didn't know what to do with them. They had rest centers where people could spend a night, but they weren't able to rehouse them initially. There was no way of giving them money. People who went to, to centers that had been set up for money were basically treated like, like, um, like Victorian beggars. Uh, they had to justify themselves. When in fact, all they needed was a loan to get themselves back on their feet. So there were all these problems with homeless people. And Ida Rodway is a, a very good example of this because she and her husband were left homeless. They were sleeping on the sister's floor with absolutely no prospects whatsoever, with no money. She was very, very worried. And what she did, instead of bringing her husband her, uh, his morning tea one morning, she went to the kitchen, put a carving knife and slit his throat and killed him. And she, the case came up at the Old Bailey and she was found guilty uh, but insane and sent to Broadmoor. Now, she protested that, you know, she wasn't insane, that actually she'd done the only thing she could do for her husband because there was nothing else. No, they were getting no assistance at all from the authorities and there was nothing else that she could do. But she avoided the hangman by being found insane. So even though that's only one story, I think it's very indicative and it's much more extreme than most stories, indicative of what was happening in October and November of the Blitz in London, where so many more people were being left homeless than the authorities had ever imagined. They simply didn't know what to do. And in the end, they appointed a man called Henry Willink, who was a conservative member of parliament. And Henry Willink just reordered society, basically, in London. He changed first of all, change the attitude towards giving people money. So people didn't have to justify themselves on the old poor law principles. But he also brought in a whole sort of swathe of emergency housing where people could move into. He brought in um, a policy where things were quickly repaired. Uh, he completely reordered society. And he did it on the sort of principles that became the sort of post-war Labour government principles. So in a way, the roots of all that, all that, that we consider to be the welfare state, really came out, I think, came out of this period. And, you know, especially when you consider that the Education Act was put in, in motion at this time as well, that allowed all sorts of people, my father included, to go to secondary school and, and further education. And, and then the, the seeds of the NHS were, were sown at this time, absolutely during the Blitz. You know, I think it's very, very interesting that this... I'm not sure this period has ever quite got the recognition that, that it deserved for, for the shift, not only in people's attitudes, but also in the attitudes of society towards its people. Let's also talk about the, the long shadow the Blitz cast on the physical environment, the built environment yeah. of British cities. It's hard here, isn't it? Because modernism, the decline of industry kind of came right off the back of the Blitz. So it's sort of hard to be precise about who caused what. But yeah. there are cities in Britain, Coventry, Exeter, perhaps Liverpool, which you could argue never kind of recovered, or, or, or can you, from the unbelievable beating it took in that winter of 1940 to 1941? Well, I think that all depends on your perspective with these things. I mean, you know, as I was saying earlier, the people of Coventry 
you know, they, they, they wanted new housing. They had been living in what, you know, really, we, nowadays we would consider slums. And, and they wanted something better for themselves to the point that, you know, in 1941, 1942, they were getting excited about what they would have after the war. This was a period of hope. Now, the buildings that were built after the war, we can look at them now and say, oh, you know, these weren't fit for purpose. They were, they were absolutely, you know, they were monstrosities. They, were, they should never have been built in the first place. Well, that's really, you know, it may be that in 50 years' time we think very differently about them. And in fact, if we look at some of these buildings now, if you look at the, I think it's called the Park Estate and, uh, in, in Sheffield, which was exactly one of these estates that was built after the war to give people a better, you know, the streets in the sky, to give people a better standard of living, you know, for, for many years, people wanted to tear it down. Now, it's considered one of the great pieces of architecture, and it's being rebuilt, and it, it's it's a, a grade two listed building. So we may think differently about a lot of these places in, in a number of years' time. Um, I think the fact is that even if, you know, mistakes were made in the, the 50s and 60s about a lot of the houses that were built, the fact is that, 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 that this period and the bombing that was done highlighted the fact that people did need some kind of improvement in their lives. I mean, you know, during the, the First World War, a lot of homes for heroes were built. A lot of housing was improved. The fact was, still huge numbers of people in Britain were living in slums. And a, a lot of people saw this period as an opportunity to sweep those slums away uh, and make people's lives better as a result. So, you know, whether, whether that was carried out properly or not, that's really, you know, that's almost a moot point. The fact is, it was seen, the Blitz as well as a time of darkness, was seen as an opportunity to make people's lives better architecturally and in terms of their housing. So actually, there was a bit of creative destruction going on there uh, as well, perhaps as well. Obviously, I, I suppose so that's the sort of architectural legacy of the Blitz, legacy of it's in the UK. One immediate legacy of the Blitz is that the Brits then turned around and attempted to bomb the Germans back to the Stone Age, using the same idea of strategic bombing, the hope that people would rise up against Hitler, hope it would bring the war to an end. So that's presumably an important sequel to the Blitz, is it the British attack on Germany? I think it is. I think it absolutely is. I think, you know, for, for one thing, it, was a, it gave the British a justification for doing it. They started it. They did it to us. We can now do it to them. Then, you know, you had people, you had, for example, Bomber Harris, who, who, who was absolutely single-minded in his belief that, that bombing could end the war, that it wasn't even necessary to have a ground war, that bombing uh, would do it on his own. Um, and... Uh, and so I think absolutely this, this, this was in many ways the, the sort of precursor to, to the bombing of Hamburg, to the bombing of Dresden, and then subsequently to the bombing of, the, you know, the bombing of Tokyo and the, the dropping of the atom bombs. And I do think it is quite interesting that, that you know, with the bombing of – when the real fire bombing began, when, when, when you had the fire bombs that, that took place, for example, in Dresden uh, and, and then in Tokyo, you know, that is when bombing sort of – you know, reached its zenith. That's when the fears, the pre-war fears of what bombing could do actually started to be realized, when entire cities were actually being razed to the ground. I mean, I, I went to, to Tokyo recently, and when you go, you compare a place like Kyoto, which wasn't bombed at all, with a place like Tokyo, which was absolutely, you know, people, people talk about the, the dropping of the atom bombs on Hiroshima and, and, and Nagasaki, but more people were actually killed by conventional bombing in Tokyo um, than were killed by either of the atom bombs. Uh, so, you know, conventional bombing could be absolutely, you know, horrific in terms of death toll as well. And I think absolutely, you, I, I, Bomber Habert actually during the Blitz stood on a roof, I think the, the roof of um, the Air Ministry in London, watching the bombing um, and saying, 
you know, they 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 have like forget the precise quote, but it's something like they uh, they they have sown the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind, uh, and you know, quoting the the Bible, and I think that was all set in motion at that point. It was it was it was kind of inevitable that tit was going to be for tat, and and a lot of people were killed in Dresden, a lot of people were killed in Hamburg and in other places, and yes, I think its roots were in the Blitz. It's an appalling. It's an appalling idea, isn't it, that what began in London in September 1940 with a with a sizable raid against East London, within three or four years' time, had grown to take the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world and destroy some of the most precious architecture and treasures of you know, societies from Japan to Germany and beyond. It's an extraordinary story, this, the, the use of air power, the use of strategic bombing in the war that goes from Dropping leaflets in 1939, the, the Brits thought that was the best use of air power, to drop yeah. leaflets, telling, to by the end of the war, unleashing nuclear armaments and wiping out entire entire cities. And it's an extraordinary story. Josh, I've taken too much of your time. That was fascinating. Please come back and talk to us on History Hit another time. Tell people what's the title of your book and where can they get it? It's called The Secret History of the Blitz. It's get it, I suppose, all good bookshops or on Amazon. Exactly. Uh, Josh, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, folks. You've reached the end of another episode. Hope you're still awake. Appreciate your loyalty. Sticking through to the end. If you fancied doing us a favour here at History Hit, I would be incredibly grateful if you would go and wherever you get these pods, give a little rating, five stars or its equivalent. A review would be great. Please head over there and do that. It really does make a huge difference. It's one of the funny things the algorithm loves to take into account. So please head over there and do that. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.